John in First John, as we walk through First, Second, and Third John, uh, with the theme "Follow Me," as we look at uh, Jesus' um, life and His commands and what it means to truly follow Him through uh, the eyes of someone who is really close to Him. And so we're going to do uh, something a little bit different. Kind of goes along with what we did last week, but uh, not super typical. We're going to do a little quiz. How many of you get immediate anxiety when I say the word quiz? Only Jade. Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's do some review. But instead of me, instead of me telling you uh, where we've been, you're gonna you're gonna tell me. First one in the literary genre. So the Bible is full of all kinds of literary genres. Okay. Everything from poems to historical uh, writings to narratives to letters to all kinds of things. What would this be? Would this be a letter, a narrative, or a poem? Letter? Anybody think differently? All right. It's an easy one. It's a letter. The author. It's John. But there's a lot of Johns in the Bible. We're talking about John the Baptist or John, son of Zebedee. of Zebedee. Anyone else? Anyone think John the Baptist? No? Adam's two for two. John, son of Zebedee, one of the twelve disciples, Jesus' best friend. Here's another one. The recipient. Was this letter written to the church at Ephesus or Corinth? You got a 50% shot of getting it right, so you might as well... Anyone say Corinth? It was Ephesus. When you look at uh, Paul's missionary journeys, um, he spent uh, the most chunk of time, a few years, in Ephesus. And that's also where John, who's writing this, uh, spent. So the church in Ephesus, they had some, some power players there for a while. Another one, the date. Was this written in the early uh, period of the A.D. 50s would be one of the newer New Testament books, um, or I guess older, depending on how you look at it, um, or the A.D. 80s, which would have been one of the last New Testament books written. Anybody else? Adam is correct. The 80s, yep, this is one of the last books written. And then last but not least, we're going to be covering a big chunk of scripture tonight. We get a little bit repetitive um, as we've talked about this theme before, but 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. If you went home and read ahead a little bit, what do you think the theme is for tonight? And I'm giving you a hint this has to do with how John, the author who wrote the Gospel of John, referred to himself in the Gospel of John. He called himself something. Jade. But hey, you made the slide for this. That's not fair. That's not fair. Yep, he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He, he says the name of all the other 11 disciples in his Gospel, but he doesn't refer to his own name, just the one whom Jesus loved. Talk about being sure of your identity in Christ. Someone says, what's your name? The one whom Jesus loves, that would be surety. So tonight, we're going to be talking about where love comes from. We've talked about love quite a bit over the last several months, uh, but hopefully this is a powerful message for you as we see uh, in depth where our love comes from. Let me ask you this. If I asked you, um, you don't have to answer this one out loud, but if I asked you for something that you didn't have, what would you do? Now, if you're mean, you'd probably say, sorry, and then let me go somewhere else. But for many of us, we, we would go and we would find that thing. We, we would receive that thing so that we can give that thing. And yet, all throughout the New Testament, you see commands, commands, commands that Jesus gives his followers, that the other apostles give followers of Jesus. And if you read through these, I don't know if you've ever been in this position, where you read through the commands in the scripture and you say, this is overwhelming. I feel worse after reading them than before I opened the Bible. How in the world am I going to live up to these standards? Over and over and over, God says, here's my commands and in and of ourselves, we can't do them. We can't do them. He tells us tonight we're going to see to love one another. 
you can't love one another unless you have gone out, found out where that love comes from, received it so that you can give it. You see, God, uh, when it comes to love, it is like a river in that he is upstream and everything that he asks us to do, everything he tells us to receive, we are downstream and it flows from him and we receive it so that it can flow through us. And so we're going to see what that river looks like tonight as we talk about where love comes from. God's not going to ask you to do something that he doesn't uh, give you everything you need in order to do it. And love is no different. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to First John 4, verses 7 and 8. Now, even though we got a big chunk of scripture, you know how I like to do it. We spend quite a bit of time early on as we set up the context uh, in these passages. Chapter 4, verse 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's a famous couple um, words there at the end, the last part of that verse, God is love. First thing we see is the origin of love. Love comes from God. Love comes from God. Here's the big idea. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is love, has love, and gives love. God loves himself. He has love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and all vice versa. They love one another. And you and I were created in the image of God. So he made a whole or a capacity, a void in your life, a desire, a longing to be loved and to give love. Now, God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to give you a whole that only I can fill. Now, humans then get to decide what do we do with that. Do we let God fill that? Do we see the love uh, of Jesus and what he did on the cross for us? Or do we go out and try to find that in other things, right? And, and so right off the bat, he tells us, be loved. This is crucial. Beloved. He tells us all throughout this book, little children, little children, little children, or beloved, meaning those who are loved. He's right off the bat, before he says the next thing, let us love one another. That's the command that outside of God's love would be incredibly hard to fulfill. But he says right off the bat, beloved. Those of you who are loved, you are loved. If you are a Christian, you do not have to worry about whether or not God loves you. You can't lose this love. God gives this love. He is this love. This is huge. Because this means that when we do fill that command or fulfill it to the best of our ability, that it's coming out of here. So we don't love people relationally in order to get love, but we love because we have love and we are loved. That's our foundation. And we know we can't have healthy relationships if we don't have that foundation. you got nothing to give. You see, when you receive God's love, and you recognize, man, I'm not, this isn't just about faith. It's not just about believing. I, I know what the Bible says about certain things, about the cross, about the good news of Jesus. But when you receive it, when you say, I need your love, I know about your love, but I need to receive it. For some of you, maybe you're in that place tonight where you just need, you need to receive it. Not just know about it, you need to receive it. But when you truly receive God's love, not just once, but even on a daily basis, letting him love you, receiving that love, then you can start, when your relationships around you, you can start loving people, truly loving people, and stop using people. You say, I don't use people. No, you see, we do, and we don't realize it. We do, and we don't realize it. You see, if you don't receive the love of God, and you try to give something that you don't have, you will, without doubt, you will turn to your spouse, the person you're dating, your kids, your family, your friends, even material possessions, and you will try to put a God-sized pressure on those relationships. It happens. Certainly happens for non-believers, but even Christians who don't receive God's love on a regular basis, and we start to forget. The Bible repeats things. You're going to see a lot of repetition. It repeats things because we forget things. And those of us who, who stop receiving love from God Knowing we're still saved, but man, we don't tangibly receive his love on a regular basis. We're going to start having distorted, unhealthy relationships. Because you can't find those in your life, they just can't fulfill 
and fill that void in your life. You see, when it comes to relationships, you and I uh, need, and, and we're called to have a disposition of giving instead of just getting. Like that's our disposition. We go into a relationship, it's to give. You cannot have a healthy marriage with a posture of what can I get out of this. I tell new uh, couples all the time when we're going through premarital counseling that when the Bible says two become one, that means not just two lives merging, but one new life starting. So it's not about how can I fit my old life and you fit your old life into this new life. No, it's two lives stopping one new one starting to become one it might not look at all like the old one it's kind of like this if you come into a relationship and those of you who are dating or trying to date listen this is this is crucial because if you come into a relationship without the foundation of having received god's love and being secure in that and knowing you got all the affection the affirmation the acceptance that you could ever need in him in him alone if you don't ever date again you could be okay you could be okay it would be like this. If you don't have that love going into a relationship, it'd be like going into a bank and saying, okay, I'd like to open a savings account or a checking account, knowing, man, I hope that money comes in and we're going to build and it's going to grow and it's going to be good. It's going to be good for the bank. It's going to be good for me. This is going to be a good thing. And then they fill out all the paperwork. They get your social security number, your name, everything. And then they say, okay, to kick this off, we're going to need just, just like 50 or 100 bucks to get things started. And you said, mm, how about 20 I'm going to look at you and say, oh, you, you want to build on this thing, but you ain't even got a foundation to draw from? This ain't a good way to start. This ain't a good way to start. It'd be even unhealthier, even more so, if you said, any way I could take out a loan, try to get from you enough to, to start this account. They say, okay, not healthy, back off. And yet, how many times do we enter in relationships, not even knowing it, that we're searching for something that they cannot give us? You see, this is a recipe for abuse, relationally. Not just physically, but emotional abuse, verbal abuse. In that, it starts often this way. That you or they will do whatever you can, say whatever you can to get in each other's good graces, to, to, uh, to give or receive love to each other. Uh, when in the end, really, you're just using each other to try to fill each other's needs that, that you know you can't. And, and it's going to eventually lead to bad, sinful behavior and habits because you're going to get frustrated because you were set up for failure from the beginning. God's saying, you can't even get in a relationship if you don't know my love. You ain't got nothing to give them. And you can't get it from them. So this is disastrous from the beginning. And we don't like to talk about that. But that's just the flat out truth. And what will happen is the relationship will crumble some way, some form, some fashion. And usually it'll end one of two ways. And it'll be crushing pressure. Either you heaped on them crushing expectations. They could not live up to it. They just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. You ever heard that? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Many marriages have ended with the wiping of the hands and the back end. I can't do this anymore. Or it'll be you that's crushed because of their inadequacy. And they'll say, I thought I was doing everything. I was loving you. I was serving you. I was doing all these things. And you're like, I don't know what's wrong. Something is still missing. And they're like, what do you want? You want kids? You want happy? Like, I'll do anything for you. I'll get an extra job. And you say, I don't know. Something's wrong. And when it ends, you'll be sitting with your friends and you'll say, I don't know what happened with that relationship. It started good and it ended bad. I don't get it because we loved each other. And God's saying, no, you used each other. Five times. It says love five times. It says God, love, 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 God, 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 God. In between all the words connecting love and God by origin and sequence. Origin, meaning love comes from God. You want to love one another? This love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
What he's saying is, if you want to love in a healthy way, if you want to be able to give it, you have to realize you can only get it from God. You have to be born spiritually of God. You have to know God and be in an intimate relationship with God where that love is still flowing from God, not just received once from God, but flowing from God so that you can let it flow through you. And it says, at the very end, that famous couple of words, God is love. God is love. How many times do you hear people say, God is love. God is love. Let me say this. It is absolutely true that God is love, but I think we often abuse those three little words. And here's a few uh, distorted understandings, both in the church and outside of the church, of this God is love phrase. First one, is when you and I elevate one attribute of God over another. So God has a whole bunch of attributes. He is good. He is loving. He is um, holy. He is sovereign. He is a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He has all of these different attributes, tons and tons of attributes. And when you and I exalt one because we want to over others, we will have a distorted view of God, especially if the exalting of one is at the expense of another. Let me, let me just give you kind of a random example over here. Uh, I love the sovereignty of God. I talk about the sovereignty of God all the time. When I say that, I refer to the fact that God is over all things, rules over all things. He is in control of all things. Now, if I just thought about the sovereignty of God, that one attribute over others, I would start looking at things in the world like, man, I see that, that, that God made things good, right? But um, like sin, how did sin get in the world? And if God's sovereign over everything, maybe, maybe God is the author of sin. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. right. Because there's another attribute that God is good, and everything that comes from God, everything that God created is good. So you've got to make sure you put that back up, otherwise you get a distorted view. Here's what happens with love. When you exalt love, when you say, love is up here, God is love, and you leave some of the other ones down here, things like holiness. What happens when you exalt love but you take the attribute of holiness and de-emphasize it with God. Well, then you've got people who are dating. Before you know it, they're sleeping together and they're living together because they felt these feelings emotionally and even legit feelings of, of love for one another. And they say, well, love is equating to fun and happiness and enjoyment. And surely God wants us to go a little bit deeper intimacy-wise because God is love. And love is so pure and so good. But, but like... I know God says don't do it, but love is what's making us do it. And so, and then someone needs to come and put their arm around you and say, but it's not at the expense of holiness. You can't, God, God is love, but he's also holy. Don't elevate one attribute over another. Second one is very similar, but a little bit different. God is love, not love is God. Here's what I mean. This world or culture will... Um, define love for you in ways that aren't necessarily biblical love. So they'll throw things like lust and and, um, uh, perverseness. They will define love in ways that um, that shouldn't be defined. Sensuality. And and then they will say, well, that's our definition of love. So we're going to do things that fit inside that definition and say that God since he is love, is okay with those things. You've got a whole bunch of people who justify, even those who don't even care about the Bible, but they just don't like Christians much. And they say, I can marry who I want. I can be attracted and do what I want with who I want. Why? Because God is love. God could never be against anything that is love. He wouldn't want anyone to not be married. Ain't you read that Corinthians passage about people in the end times not marrying each other? Right? And what they don't understand is, if God is the origin of love, God is love, then God and who he is and what he says define what love is. We don't make up our own understanding and definition of love and then judge God by it. God tells us what love is. It changes things. He gets to define it. We don't. Last but not least. I threw this one in just for fun. Because we say, well, God is love. Then how in the world can we justify the times in Scripture, particularly where it seems like God is acting in unloving ways? If he is love and he does loving things, how can he do things like 
I don't know, send people to hell, right? Or, or you see killings in the Old Testament. Now, again, you've got to go back to the other one. God defines love, and, and he does things for his glory. But there's things that you and I don't, don't understand. Let me, let me just ask you, when it comes to how God would, would let people go to hell, this is for the parents, but all of you can answer this one, uh, particularly dads. Um, let, me, let me say this. If you've got a spouse, and you've got kids, and you've got a home, and, and then you've got a stranger who hates you, and he hates your kids, and he is not only against you, but he might harm you. Like, he doesn't want good for you. He wants bad for you. Do you, as a dad, say, hey, I'm going to force you. Come on, live with us. Would you take a stranger who hates you and your family and say, come on, live with us? No, you probably wouldn't, would you? Why? Because you've got to take care of those who you love. Now, here, here's the thing. God is a father, heaven is a home, and the church is his family. And so God is saying, there's people who hate me. They hate my ways. They hate my word. They hate the church. And there's my family. I am loving them by protecting them from here. And, and God you ever heard that old phrase you hear in a country song once in a while, that, that if you really love someone, you let them go, right? There's a little smidgen of truth to that. That God's saying, I gave you free will. And I'm as much letting you go to hell as you are choosing to go to hell. The door is open. Come be part of my family. I want to change your heart towards us. I want to give you love towards us. But I'm letting you choose that. I will pursue you. I will draw you in. I will rescue you if you want it but I'm not going to force you to be with them. And because I love them, I'm going to let you be separated from them until you choose to not be. This is pretty fun tonight, isn't it? We'll speed it up a little bit. Verse 9. Now in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Second thing we see is that love comes or came via the cross. Love came via the cross. So right off the bat, you say this is love, right? That, that God was made manifest among us. Manifest meaning that, that it was visible, it was tangible, that we didn't have to just wonder, but we could see it. You see, this whole concept of love, biblical love, it will drive you mad if you just sit around and think about it. And you say, what is biblical love? Like, what, what does it look like? We got to see it. And God's saying, I know, I know that you got to see it. The cross, Jesus in the flesh, is how you see it. So you, no one can say, I don't know what it looks like, because when they see the cross, God's saying, that's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. I met with a young mom the other day who was uh, telling me about some insecurities she had in raising her kids, and, and that her spouse knew the Lord from an early age, but she didn't. And he grew up in the church, but she didn't. And, and she said that she fears, like, what would happen if he passed away? And she had to raise her kids alone. And she was saying that, that the husband has a game plan spiritually to raise those kids. They, they pray every night. They, they pray over their kids' salvation every night. That, that they study the word in the morning. They study the word at night. Like all these things. She's like, man, it's good. I love it. But like, I don't know what I would do if I was alone. And as we talked about it, and she said, I guess I just don't because I didn't have parents that were in the church, I just don't know what it looks like for me to raise and be a spiritual leader, to raise kids. Like you and I, we got to know what it looks like. And when it comes to love, God's saying the cross is what it looks like. Someone might say, you know what? I mean, the cross is important. It's a historical fact. It's, it's obviously a big deal. But I think I can understand the love of God outside of, of the cross. Like there's other things he has done to show... No, you cannot understand the love of God outside of the cross. 
You can't. There's a reason why for the last 2,000 years you see symbols from the early church fathers all the way up to any uh, church essentially you'd go into today uh, of uh, the symbolic cross. Why? Because it's the core of our faith. It is where love collided with our sin. It's where Jesus paid the price for our sin. There's a reason for that. Biblically, when you say, you know what? We need, we need some kind of definition. What is biblical love? Because I don't just want to assume that we're all on the same page here. I think the two things that mark biblical love is selflessness and sacrifice. I think selflessness and sacrifice mark it. And you say, man, where do you get that from? I get it from the cross. That's why Mark 10 says that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for, for many. That he, knowing, this is the selflessness, that he is love, that he has self-sustained love because he's God. Like when you have that, when you know, I don't need to prove myself to people. I don't need to earn it. I can't lose it. I'm secure. That's what happens when you have love from God. You say, I can breathe. I'm free to just give this. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't have to worry about pleasing anyone. But he knew, I want to please my father. I love him. He gave me love. I, I, I'm going to. So it's selfless because you already have everything that you need. You don't need to get it from the other person. But it's sacrificial because it's worth giving yourself so that others will know this love as well. Obviously, the cross is sacrificial. But we want others to receive it. You see, you can say all day long, well, I love this person in my life and this person and this person. I love my mama. I love my daddy. I love my friends. I love my friends. love my church. You want to know who you love? Who do you sacrifice for? Your time, your energy. Who do you sacrifice for? Not who are you manipulated into giving more time and energy because you can't say no to things. No, but like, who do you willingly say? They ask me to do something, I'm going to do it. I want to. Who, who do in your life do you put their needs and their desires above yourself. You find out who that group of people are, that person. That's who you love, biblically. That's love. And what this, these couple of verses are essentially saying, verse 10 especially, that God loves first. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. You, you see this over and over. That God, he initiates love. We rejected him first. From the very beginning, we rejected him. We pushed him away. And he said, I'm going to initiate it. I've got it. I'm the one to give it. I'm coming after you. I'm pursuing you. I will rescue you. And you see even Romans 8, or excuse me, 5, 8, says that while we were still what? Sinners. So in a good place to be loving people? To be ones who like really knew the love of God? No. While we were sinners, while we had nothing, while we were broken, God said, I'm coming. That's when Christ died for us. He came. When you got nothing to give is when he says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. God pursues. That's a big deal because the pressure is off. Religion says, how can I make God love me? The cross says, he already does. Religion says, how, how can I make God love me? What can I do to make him love me? The cross says, he already does. In these couple of verses, you see three beautiful things. God as being the Father, the Son, his only Son, perfect, holy, righteous, and, and his love colliding with one big issue, and that is our sins, and the solution is the cross. It says that he was the propitiation. Propitiation, what in the world does that mean? It means that the wrath of God, the anger of God because of our sin, right? There was an issue that divided us from God, that it was turned on to Jesus and taken off of us. This is crucial. Some of us don't believe that, that God isn't angry with us. Because we know we don't live up to his standards. We don't do well enough. We think he, he's angry with us. He hates us. He has wrath for us. He has punishment for us. And Jesus is saying, no, he, he put that on me. I willingly took that. This is why, again, if you say, or someone tells you, they say, oh, 
I don't want to hear Ryan preach. Or I don't want to hear someone preach about this bloody cross of Jesus. It's, yeah, it's kind of gross. We've got Good Friday coming up. I love Good Friday. My favorite time to preach in the whole world. You say, why? Just tell me about the love of God. Don't, you don't tell me about that. You can't tell someone about the love of God if you don't tell them about the wrath of God. It means nothing. Someone staying with you doesn't matter unless they have the option to leave. Right? That's why God gave humanity free will. And the love that God showed us on the cross means nothing if we don't first and foremost realize there is wrath that was put on us that he said, I'll take it. I think a lot of Christians honestly believe that the cross is essentially God's way of saying, I'm just going to wipe clean what you guys did. Let's just start fresh. And, and we've got to understand that it is justice on earth. That God's saying, someone had to pay the price. It's you or him. Thank God it was him. Thank God it was him. What do you do about this? You got to start believing tonight that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. Nothing. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, can you see why we have the theme of love tonight? It's over and over and over and over. 40 times in five chapters, John talks about love. Then we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides or lives or remains in us. And his love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide or remain in him. So this is unity here, us and God. And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Third thing we see, love comes from God. Love came via the cross and love Today, if you are a believer, comes via the Holy Spirit. Not just to you, but through you. So God loves us, the cross proves it, and the indwelling Holy Spirit helps believers to continue to be loving. It says, y'all, you ought to love one another. Now he's talking about the church. And what he's saying is that for us to be a Christian church, for us to say, you know what, we are going to be what John, what Jesus, what they tell us we should be as Christians. He's saying, you got to recognize the proof of receiving God's love is to give God's love. And it starts with each other. That means that there's going to be people around you. Maybe you're even sitting next to them across from them tonight that you don't, you don't like them. <laughs> you don't agree with them. Maybe you don't even want to be around them at times, but you still love them. still love them. Why is this such a big deal? Because it says no one has ever seen God. So God, it says, scripture says he is spirit. He is invisible. Even though Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? But we, we realize Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father right now. There is no physical Jesus on earth anymore, physical part of the Trinity. But through you and I and our love for one another, we are the tangible form. So here's the deal. We see the cross and we see God's love. The world sees us loving one another and they see God's love. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It's important that we see the cycle of love. It comes from God. It goes through the cross, it goes to us, and then it goes through us to others, and, and that's how we show that we love God. And it goes over and over and over. It's kind of like this. God created the human body with a heart. I hope you got a heart inside there somewhere. Uh, people have asked if I got a heart sometimes. I don't know why. It's just weird. But anyway, they, um, you guys know that in order for blood to be pumping through your body, it's got to have a heart or suppose they could make one up nowadays, but you need a heart. Now, here's the thing. In order for that heart to work properly, what does the blood have to be doing? It's got to be moving. What happens? Does anyone know what happens when blood stops moving? Jade says it's gross. Yes, scientifically, what the doctors would say is this is, it's gross. Oh, you got clots? If it ain't moving, then it's dying. 
Something's wrong. This is where, where you get strokes. This is where you get heart attacks. This is where things get clogged up. You've got problems. You see, by design, God's saying the very blood in you has to be moving in order for it to be working properly. And when he says, I love you, I'm showing you through the cross how much I love you. But in order for my love to be completed, and it says here perfected in us. Remember, the the Greek here for perfected means completed. In order for it to be completed, it has to be going through you. So you can't just receive it and say, yeah, I receive it, but then have grudges and hate the people around you, particularly in the church. He's saying the reason, the way I know it's in you is that it's going through you. That's what the Spirit will do when it's inside of you. It'll make you want to love other people. But it's going to be a supernatural love. When the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, it's got to be supernatural. You see, natural love, the kind that any of us can really give one another, says, I'm going to love those who love me. I'm going to love those who reciprocate it or at least appreciate it. Scripture says even the world can do that. It's easy to love people who love you back, but supernatural love, the love that comes when the Holy Spirit lives in you and it goes ba-boom, ba-boom. And as the spiritual heartbeat for you that keeps that love moving through you, it's going to help you to love those that you don't like, to love those that you don't agree with, to love those that you don't know, strangers, and to love those that you even call enemies. It's a supernatural kind of love. You say, I don't know how in the world still I get it. The Holy Spirit lives in me. How do I love like this? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is realize that you're the conduit and not the breaker box. What I mean is, for those of you who know much about electricity, there's, there's wire that electricity goes flew through, but it, it is uh, usually in conduit, the pipe, right? And so you don't stop. It doesn't stop. The flow doesn't stop in it. It just goes through it. That's all it does is let things flow from one to another. But the breaker box is the source of the power. It's where if there's a power outage, you look at. If it's where there's an outburst, if there's more power, there's a surge, that's where you go. And what happens is Christians sometimes know that we're commanded to love, but we start to see ourselves as the source of love, and we don't realize it. You want to know how you view yourself as a source of love and not just the conduit? If you've got bitterness resentment, anger towards people, it's usually that you know you should love them. And instead of being conduit saying, okay, God, I can't do this on my own. I need a supernatural kind of love. I need your Holy Spirit to give me something supernatural. You say, okay, I know I should love them. And I got to somehow muster it. God's saying, turn, turn from that way and realize that I over here, I am the source. You're the conduit. Just give it when you receive it. Just don't worry about being the one that's got to muster it up, because you can't. There'll always be issues. There's, there's freedom in that. There's freedom in knowing that you're not the power source. Because a lot of us live life like we're a bunch of tripped breakers. People tick us off. Well, I can't love them anymore because you should see what they're doing to my family. Oh, they come into my workplace all the time, and they're just so greedy, and they're odd, and they're weird, and I just have a hard time loving them. You're not the breaker. You shouldn't be getting tripped because you're not the power source. You just say, God tells me to love them. I get love from God. I can love them. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So, fourth thing we see is that love goes to non-Christians. So we saw that love comes from God, love comes via the cross, love comes via the Holy Spirit that lives in you and works today. Now it goes. 
Now it goes, not just to one another in the church, but it goes even to non-Christians. So far, it's all been in-house. But now we're going out of house a little bit. And the world, for those of you who um, think, well, what, what is the world? The world is not just the culture, but it's value system. It's ways that are opposed to God. So when God says the world, he's often referring to in his word as just those who don't like him, those who hate him, those who are against him. They might not outwardly say, oh, I hate God, but the way they live rejects him and rebels against him. The way they think rejects him and rebels against him. That's the world. It's the value system of a godless culture. But ultimately, God says, I rule over my kingdom and I want to rule over their kingdom. I want my kingdom to expand. You know, some churches, I don't know, maybe you guys have been a part of this. Some churches take such great pride in not just being separated from the world, but hating the people of the world. And even earlier in John, it says you can't love God and love the world. Remember when we covered that? But he's talking about the value system, not the people. You've heard the old saying, to love the sinner but hate the sin kind of a thing. Some folks, like a Westboro Baptist, if you wonder why we changed our name from Westbrook Baptist to Crosspoint, it wasn't just because we had lots of campuses and it didn't make sense. It's because we got a lot of hate mail from people thinking we were Westboro Baptist Church, but we were Westbrook Baptist Church. You see a church like that that takes pride in, in picketing funerals and hating on people who obviously don't follow the ways of God. It doesn't sit well with Christians, does it? Because you say, man, you're missing something. You're taking a little too much pleasure in hating the people more than just their actions. You see, to love the world doesn't mean to affirm the world, but it's to live in such a way that invites them into what we have. For some, this is a huge test. Because you can spend time with some annoying Christians, because it's in-house, but you have a really hard time the person who abused you to say, I love them. They don't know God, but I, I, can, I can show love towards them. Or, or the rapist, or the murderer, or the person who lives a homosexual lifestyle. And to say, hmm, I'm not comfortable with what they do. But man, I want to love them. Knowing God hadn't given up on them. God wants to work through me to them that I'm a missionary as much as anything else. And then i got to get uncomfortable. You see, that biblical definition of love of selflessness and sacrifice, you could add one more, commitment. That you're going to stand firm, not just in your beliefs, but with people knowing, man, i got to be a pillar so that God can show his love through me. I am... Um, I was watching a TED Talk. Any of you guys ever seen any of those little TED Talks? They're like 6, 8, 10, 15 minutes. People talking about all kinds of random things. And I saw one not too long ago about a, a gal who grew up in Westboro Baptist Church, was part of the family, and left it. And she was talking about growing up and learning from an early age to hate people and to, at the age of four, carrying these song, these signs, God hates fags and God hates soldiers and this is his wrath and his judgment and all these different things and traveling and all the things that she was told to say. And she got to the point where she said she legitimately did hate people. She didn't know these people, but she just hated people. And um, she gave the story of her conversion that part of what the family encouraged her and others to do was to get on the internet, to get in different chat rooms, and to engage just hate speech on the internet. She said most people would come and hear that you know, she's from Westboro, and they would just fight her real quick and then get off. But she said there was some people who, with gentleness and kindness and love, engaged her in conversation. And she said she was blown away because these people... Um, and she referenced one man in particular, would uh, talk about heated things, but then make light of it and, and kind of 
go back and relax and get back together and they'd talk about he did things and kind of go back and, and stayed persevering, talking to her over and over and over and did lots of research about her and her background and the beliefs of Westboro and said that they did so much research that their arguments were compelling and that after a while, realizing these people weren't leaving her alone, that they weren't running from her like everyone else, that she started to ponder some of the things that they were saying. Eventually, she not only left that church, that cult, she married the guy that was reaching out to her. And I think it shows that sometimes the one who who wins isn't the one who yells the loudest, but the one who stands firm the longest and says, I don't have to affirm your life style, your choices, the things you do, but I can still love you because I got love to share. And I'm going to stand here upholding everything I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not backing down one bit. Not yelling at you. But loving you. We're missionaries. Some of you have relationships with people that you know it's uncomfortable to be with them. I don't know what to say to them. God didn't send you to them to separate from them in the sense that you just won't talk to them. You can live differently, but you can still live amongst them and love them. Last but not least, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Last but not least, for a lot of what casts out fears. Love casts out fears. So verse 19, 20, and 21 cover a lot of what we've already covered, affirming over and over and over these truths of Scripture that God loves first, that we love others, and it's proof that we have been receiving love from God. But let me end with verse 18. This is a a famous verse for many of us. We know it. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Let me ask you, knowing we all got fears, what are you scared of? What are you scared of? Christian, non-Christian, we all got fears. What John's saying is, Listen, bottom line, there's two ways to live life. You can either live in fear or you can live in love. And you've got to understand the world that we live in and the culture that we live in in this country feeds off of fear, loves fear. Think about the successful politicians just way back in October, November. What do they do? Fear, fear, fear. They pump fear into the consumer. Here's where things are headed. Here's what's going on. You need to follow me. I can help you. What does the media do? They feed on fear. They know we don't just want to hear good news about success stories and and good things on the news at night. We want to hear about the murders. We want to hear about the bad things. We want to hear about the car accidents. Why? Because we fear and it captures our attention. We fear. Think about your family. You fear heartache for your family don't you? You don't want any tragedy to happen. We fear our jobs, even though we know we got a purpose in Christ bigger than that job, we fear losing it. We fear our health going bad, even though this isn't the body we're going to end with. We fear these things. And John's saying that's not the way to live. This world loves the what ifs. But what if this happens? But what if that happens? But what if? Listen. I love, um, I love when I see Silas when I come home for lunch or if he were to walk in right now and he came up to me and I called him over to myself. Now, unless he was being a little rascal that night, more than likely, he would come over and I'd put my hand down and I'd just put it on his head and he would just let his head just mold into my hand. Or when I'm sitting on the couch and I say, come here, buddy. And he comes and he nuzzles his little noggin in my chest or my belly and he just snuggles with me. I love that. I love it. And you say, what does that have to do do with anything? Well, have you ever seen the opposite of that? Have you ever been in public and you've seen a father call over his chilled family? 
but you could tell something wasn't quite right. That maybe there was some abuse going on in that family. And that the child or children didn't know what to do because they were in public and they just kind of hesitate. You could tell they weren't just shy. They, they feared going to their dad. The dad wasn't going to make a scene. Just said, get over here now. Come here. Just tense in the room. Like, behind closed doors, something ain't right. If we were honest, there's some of us tonight that that's the way we feel with God. That we got to fear him. That he's some kind of abusive father. We wouldn't say he's abusive, but we fear him because we know how we live today. And we know how we fell short today. And we know all the things that we mess up in. And we just think, ah, God, I don't know how to approach you. I hesitate. And God's saying, I'm a good father. And you can fear me because you know that I am holy and perfect and awesome. But you don't fear me when I call your name. You need to know you can come to me. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. And God's saying, Jesus spiritually took care of all the what-ifs. Well, what if I don't live up to God's standard? Jesus got it covered. Well, what if I don't live up to the call? Jesus got it covered. His spirit is in you. Well, what if I, I fail? What if I doubt? What if I... The cross answered those questions. God's love is secure, and it makes God's heart feel good. When you, even though you know your own mistakes, and you know of your, your previous sins, and you know the ones that are coming that you haven't even walked in yet, you just know of them. But you trust in the cross of Jesus enough to be able to walk up to him and nuzzle in to your Father in heaven. Say, God, I've had a bad day, but I know the cross covers it. God, I know I've messed up but I'm secure in your love. And you got to know tonight that God's saying, that's what I like when you trust my son and you can come to me when I call your name. Our job is just to receive it and give it. You ain't got to be the source of love and you got a father who loves and it's not changing. I'm going to pray to close us out tonight. But if there's anyone here who says, yeah, I know about all this stuff. But like, I don't know if I receive God's love. Maybe ever. Maybe just this week you need to hear him say, I love you. I want to invite you to join me as we pray.